The idea of men with power meeting behind closed doors, planning to affect the course of world events, is a powerful one. During what some might call the golden age of conspiracies, there were many secret clubs and organizations, a few of which have survived to the present day, like the Freemasons, and a few that did not survive, but some people think they have anyway, like the Illuminati. However, most of them died out or morphed into something else entirely. Yet new groupings of those with influence have formed, and these too are suspect in the eyes of some. Perhaps memories of old star chambers which carried out extrajudicial proceedings are what worry people. Or maybe it's just an inherent distrust of powerful people plotting to influence the world and reshape it, probably to their own benefit, which just might also mean to the detriment of the rest of us, the 99%. We'll look at a private club, two think tanks, an annual gathering, and one hypothetical international alliance that have many tongues a wagon in the conspiracy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse, Org Org Chart, Chart. Insidious Institutions. Institutions. I'd like to remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast, and if you like what we do, you may donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in The Clearinghouse, And along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The Bohemian Bohemian Grove. Grove. In 1872, a group of journalists and artsy types started meeting up in a building on Post and Taylor Streets in San Francisco, just a couple of blocks from Union Square. Soon, the Bohemian Club, as they called themselves, also let in businessmen and academics and occasionally people in the military and a few other high-ranking and society types. They based it on similar private clubs of the 19th century in other cities, making it a place where members could get work done, have a decent meal, and mix with others who had similar interests. The word bohemian refers to a part of what's now the Czech Republic, but in the mid-19th century, the term had come to represent a whole ideal of life, probably because there had been an influx of Romani people from Bohemia to Paris, and a lot of the artists there thought that this lifestyle that they were leading was intriguing and adopted elements of it as their own. This was one of eclectic interests, usually artistic in some way, a wandering from place to place with no fixed center or abode, sometimes promoting a simple life and even occasionally the new concept of free love. Followers of Bohemianism, as it was known, were kind of forerunners to the hippies of the 1960s. 
In the United States, newspaper reporters were known as bohemians because they were often short of funds and wandered here and there in search of their stories. And so the Bohemian Club was first founded as a refuge for such men. But as wealthier people became members, the character of the club changed, becoming a bit more exclusive, though even the wealthy would fancy themselves to be a little bit bohemian maybe in their attitudes and tastes. The Bohemian Club started as a men-only club and remains that way to this day. The famous actor Harry Edwards, who was a member, decided he was going to leave San Francisco and move to New York. So he threw a lavish party in a grove of redwood trees north of San Francisco in Marin County as a bit of a send-off. It was a huge hit, and so they repeated the party the next year and then the next. Finally, members all contributed funds to buy a parcel of land in the Redwoods along the Russian River in an area known as Monterio, up in Sonoma County, about 70 miles north of San Francisco. This would eventually grow to be a tiny town of a thousand or so people, but at the time it was just a train stop and a few lumber mills. As the years progressed, the Bohemian Club would buy more and more land, expanding what they now call the Bohemian Grove. Club members would come here once a year for a retreat out of the city and their busy lives, a chance to hang out with their fellow Bohemians and sort of recharge the batteries, if you will. These gatherings continued to occur every year, usually in late July. But gatherings at the Bohemian Grove have raised eyebrows over the years in conspiracy circles. The Bohemian Grove is divided into several camps with names like Caveman, Mandalay, Lost Angels, Owl's Nest. Think of each camp as kind of like its own fraternity house at a university. Members of the same camp form close bonds that continue often outside the grove. Membership in a particular camp is sometimes passed down father to son. In the overall complex, there are two stages for performances, a large campfire area, a clubhouse, a dining area that seats 1,500, a museum, an artificial lake, and a 40-foot-tall wooden owl statue, who supposedly represents wisdom and the goddess Athena. The motto of the Grove and the Bohemian Club is, Weaving Spiders Come Not Here, a line from Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. This was meant as an admonition to not talk shop with fellow members, though they totally do anyway. During the retreat, there are concerts and talks and discussions on all sorts of topics. But the big event is the strange play-slash-ritual-slash-ceremony known as the Cremation of Care, which happens on the first night. An effigy dubbed Dull Care is brought across the lake in a boat to a group of men in hooded robes who place it on an altar and then chant. The image is then set on fire. A speech echoes out from hidden speakers with a different guest speaker every year. One year it was Walter Cronkite. And then they set off some fireworks. There are a few people in the Bay Area who think that knowledge of this that crept out into the public inspired the Burning Man Festival. It all sounds kind of like fraternal hijinks, unless an informal grouping with hundreds of the most powerful people in the country gets your spidey sense of tingling, in which case it can seem sinister. Here you have some of the most influential people in America rubbing elbows with arty types, and so the director of the CIA is grilling sausages next to a member of the Grateful Dead, and well, I mean, surely they talk about stuff, right? Surely deals are made, agendas are set in motion... In 1974, John Vanderzee got inside by pretending to be a waiter, and he got to observe firsthand some of the goings-on. 
He used this information to write The Greatest Men's Party on Earth Inside the Bohemian Grove, the first real look inside this exclusive event. He said that, yes, while it is a big old party in the woods for dudes, there certainly have been some larger scale things that have also gone on. One thing he recounts is how he heard that during World War II, several scientists were invited to the Grove to talk about how one might develop a nuclear bomb program, talks which later grew into the Manhattan Project. Since women aren't allowed, there's quite a bit of opposition to Bohemian Grove in pretty liberal Sonoma County. In 1980, protesters outside the compound started holding a ceremony of their own they called the Resurrection of Care, symbolically negating the effects of the Bohemian Grove ritual. That same year, a reporter for Mother Jones managed to get himself inside during the gathering and wrote the first report ever about what transpired there. In 1989, a writer for Spy Magazine also got inside for a few days by pretending to be a guest, but he was thrown out when discovered. In 2000, Alex Jones managed to get past security and film part of the cremation of care ceremony. It's a little impressive that he got past the security because it's pretty tight. It's patrolled all year by ex-military types who use night vision, motion detectors, vibration alarms, and these days, drones. Jones thought it was all creepy, calling it a, quote, ancient Canaanite, Luciferian, Babylon mystery religion ceremony which doesn't actually make sense when all strung together, but hey, that's Alex Jones. He would later go on and expand on what he called, quote, gay rituals. Alex Jones is kind of obsessed with homosexuality. Journalist John Ronson, who got access to the Grove for his 2001 book, Them, found it less evil mystical ritual and more like just a big frat party. Quote, My lasting impression was of an all-pervading sense of immaturity, the Elvis impersonators, the pseudo-pagan spooky rituals, the heavy drinking. These people might have reached the apex of their professions, but emotionally they seem trapped in their college years. Which is very much the character of the entire Bohemian Grove thing. I actually knew a guy many years ago who was a member, a millionaire who ran a bluegrass music studio, this despite his being a Republican as almost every member of the club is today. And he would go on and on about how great it is to piss in the woods standing next to Henry Kissinger. Now look, I'm not kink-shaming, but that doesn't sound like such a great time to me. In fact, there is a lot of beer drinking and a lot of outdoor pissing. So much that there are signs placed at various places that say things like, Gentlemen, please, no pee-pee here, which would tell you exactly the emotional level that's considered normal for the Bohemian Grove. But hey, for high-powered guys who spend most of their time in suits doing high-pressure jobs, this sort of thing might seem to be just the tonic, a way to let their hair down what's left of it. For some members, this annual retreat is the highlight of their year. A few have said that their trip to the Grove is on a par with having great sex, a release of stress and responsibility, if just for a short while. As with so many things, it's all a little bit true, except for the gay Babylonian Satan stuff. But the men-only thing really annoys a lot of people, and there's pressure on the Bohemians to open up their membership. After all, they've managed to get a few token non-whites in there now. In 1978, the Trump got in trouble for having a male-only staff, which contravened California labor laws. So in 1981, they started allowing women to work as waiters and cleaners. 
All of this nonsense about genders prompted two women, former Westinghouse executive Susan Stoutberg and futurist Edie Weiner, to start the Belizean Grove, a women-only event that meets each year in various locations around Central and South America, attended by powerful and influential women. Now, some people wanted to join in these reindeer games, but for whatever reason, they never got invited. Or they did, but they didn't get to guide things at the Grove the way that they thought they should go. So, they started their own version. Like United Airline co-founder Jack Mitchell, who became a Bohemian Club member in 1928, but then married into money and, with some of that newfound cash, started his own thing in 1930 called Los Rancheros Visitores, or the Visiting Ranchers, who meet each year in Southern California, mainly around Santa Barbara and the offbeat town of Solvang, which is built using Dutch architectural styles and has a windmill. Like the Grove, Los Rancheros is divided into different camps, mainly based on where members are from. So you have Los Vigilantes, who mainly come from San Francisco, Los Picadores, who come from Los Angeles, and then you have other camps with fun names like Los Amigos, Los Tontos, which means the bums, Los Bandidos, and Los Flojos, the lazy ones. Some camps are made up of people who are also current members of the Bohemian Club. For example, Ronald Reagan was a Bohemian as well as a member of Rancheros Visitores. Now, in 1948, two rich guys from Colorado, one of whom was Frank Ricketson Jr., the man who introduced popcorn to American cinemas, decided to split off from Los Rancheros Visitores and start their own thing in Colorado, which they said had much nicer nature and would focus on being more sort of a dude ranch for the powerful, a way for them to play cowboy. They called it the Roundup Riders of the Rockies, always abbreviated to 3R on all their documents and they kept it very exclusive by limiting membership to a maximum of 130 at any given time. And instead of an odd ritual performance in front of a giant owl, they conduct an annual horse trek. But they do this at the same time as the Bohemian Grove festivities, so any Roundup members who are also Bohemians have to choose which one to participate in each year. So, if you're a Republican male with money and influence, you have a number of diverting getaways available to you every year. You can hit the dusty trail on horseback in Colorado, or you can get a bit drunk in the woods and pee next to a corporate CEO and a four-star general. The choice, the choice is yours! yours. The Brookings, the Brookings Institution, Institution. In 1916, businessman and philanthropist Robert S. Brookings, who made his first money in woodware, set up three organizations, the Carnegie-funded Institute of Economics, the Washington University-affiliated Robert Brookings Graduate School, and the Institute for Government Research, or IGR, which had the stated aim to be, quote, the first private organization devoted to analyzing public policy issues at the national level. All three of these organizations merged together in 1927, and it became known as the nonprofit Brookings Institution, what today we would call a think tank. And think they did. They certainly had ideas about how things should be. They were all very much against FDR's National Recovery Administration. They helped mobilize the U.S. when they entered World War II, ramping up production of materiel. And they helped manage the smooth operation of the post-war Marshall Plan. They had people who were on both sides of the political landscape and really mainly focused on financial and foreign relations concerns. Okay, the first think tank. So what? Well, here's what. 
NASA was set up in 1958, very much in response to the October 4th, 1957 launch of Sputnik 1 by the Soviet Union, the first human satellite. In 1959, the newly formed NASA commissioned a report from Brookings on possible long-term goals of space exploration and how NASA might end up affecting society at large. More than 250 smart people got to work thinking and talking and writing, and they gave the report to NASA on November 30th, 1960, with the House of Representatives being given the same report on April 18th the following year. The report was titled, Proposed Studies of the Implications of Peaceful Space Activities for Human Affairs, and it covered a number of topics and areas. But the one that often gets the conspiracy we are all worked up is when they muse on whether we might one day come into contact with intelligences not of our own world. These beings could well be superior to us in many ways, especially technologically, and that could end up being a problem. They also might be so different from us that we just couldn't fathom them at all, nor they us. And this could also be a threat, whether directly, like our extraterrestrial buddies are in a bit of a colonial mood or highly militaristic, or maybe inadvertently, they just don't value us at all, treating us more like animals rather than sentient beings. However, this in turn, the report notes, might unite the human race against a potential adversary. But all of this is just musings. Shortly after this report was issued, NASA saw a budget increase, though not because of this report. Ah, but some conspiracists say, what if the budget increase actually was because of the report? What if that frankly too long to actually read all the way through documents actually said that we had already made contact with extraterrestrials, or at least the remnants of alien civilizations, on the moon and Mars? And then those NASA egghead jerk faces covered it all up because their brief was to make sure that the only country the aliens dealt with was the United States. So shrieked NASA haters in the conspiracy world, a collection of unfounded assumptions that could easily be dispelled by actually reading the report. What are you, what, crazy? You crazy? It's almost, it's like, almost 300 like 300 pages, pages long. long. See, if you did read it, you would see that it also says things like, if we found alien life, it probably wouldn't impact most Americans at all, at least not any more than, say, the discovery of the panda did. UFO dude Richard Hoagland, who used to be a curator at the Space Museum, said in 1993 that what was now known as the Brookings Report, which is a stupid name because they've written hundreds and hundreds of reports before this and hundreds and hundreds of reports afterwards, actually outlined a program of public psychological conditioning to prepare all of us dum-dum heads for the disclosure that we are in contact with aliens and have been for some time. Note, he says, the increase in science fiction-themed entertainment and the like. This is to condition us to eventually accept the truth. Also, he says, maybe some of those supposed UFO sightings and alien abductions that people report are actually false flags, tests to see how we cope and if we are ready for the deep truth yet. Well, as you can imagine, once you entertain that as base reality, it spirals out from there. With people who believe that the Sidonia Mense geographical feature on Mars is actually a big sculpture of a humanoid face. This talking point is experiencing something of a revival lately, thanks to Scott C. Waring, who ran a website called UFO Sightings Daily, which is now gone, but there is still a YouTube channel, and who was poking around with publicly accessible images from the Mars rover over Thanksgiving 2022, when he found what he says is the toppled head of a massive statue of some sort of reptile-looking creature. 
He calls it, quote, 100% proof of an alien species existing on Mars. However, to most of us, it looks like a rock or maybe kind of like a head that you would see at an Aztec temple or maybe in Cambodia. Waring very much wants to believe, having previously, quote, found in Mars images, the bones of a creature he said looked like an elephant with a short trunk. That was in June 2022. An image from Google Earth that he said was proof of a UFO off the coast of Peru over four miles across. This was in April 2022. A copy of the Bible sitting in the dirt on Mars. This was in October 2020. And an image from NASA that shows a black orb-like UFO 25 times the size of the planet Earth orbiting just above the surface of the sun. And there are plenty of people out there who agree with him. At any rate, the Brookings Institution is well-respected by most, looked askance at by some, and absolutely loathed by many in the Aliens Are Here camp. I mean, there have been some questions raised as to where some of their funding comes, like the government of Qatar, who gave them $14.8 million over four years, the single largest contribution to the institution by anyone outside the U.S., and in fact... Brookings president, retired four-star Marine General John Allen, had to resign in June 2022 after the FBI found he'd been lobbying behind the scenes on behalf of Qatar back in 2017 during a diplomatic kerfuffle between them and other oil-producing nations in the Middle East. And that is one of the things that a lot of people who cry cabal at these sorts of organizations have a problem with. Their access to people who actually are in power and, well, you know, humans are corruptible. And who's to say when their recommendations are sincere and when they're just a kind of highbrow payola? The Bilderberg, the Bilderberg Conference. Conference. On May 29, 1954, there was a three-day off-the-record conference at the Bilderberg Hotel in Oosterbeek, Netherlands, just outside Arnhem, to promote the idea of transatlanticism, the coordinating of economic, political, and military ideas and initiatives between the U.S. and Western Europe, meaning not the communist bit of Europe. The idea mainly came from Josef Rettinger, who'd been the main advisor to the Polish government in exile during World War II, who enlisted the help of the Prince Consort of the Netherlands, a former Belgian Prime Minister, the head of the consumer goods company Unilever, and American Charles Douglas Jackson, an expert in psychological warfare who'd been suggested to head the CIA. Together, they drew up a list of 50 people from 11 countries, plus 11 Americans, to attend this first-of-its-kind meeting. People from government, finance, and business, like the head of the company, Heinz, all met and talked about how they could help bring these two halves of what people were calling the West together, together more, and promote what they saw as the distinctive culture and character of free market capitalist representative democracies. Though the location of the annual invitation-only meeting changes venues every year, the name Bilderberger has stuck. And no, it has not been named after some secret identification code from the Nazi SS, as some have claimed. Bilderberger was just the name of the first hotel they used. The conference has since grown to include influential people from the media, like the editor-in-chief from The Economist and Charlie Rose, and people from the academic world, and now has participants from 18 countries. 
Other notable members include journalist and former Johnson Press Secretary Bill Moyers, neocon Wunderkind Paul Wolfowitz, career diplomat Richard Charles Albert Holbrook, George Mitchell, former Democratic Party leader under Bush Sr. and Clinton, civil rights attorney and former head of American Express Vernon Jordan, media mogul Conrad Black, and American diplomat and Asia specialist Winston Lord. The Bilderbergers use what are known as Chatham House rules, which means that any information gathered at the meeting can freely be used by any and all participants, but the source of said information must always remain confidential. So the Bilderberg Conference started out as very pro-American and very anti-communist. Yet suspicious minds started suggesting that maybe the real purpose was to promote socialism of some kind and create a unified unified Europe Europe and eventually eventually a single single world world government government for the the entire entire world. world. However, socialism and communism are not the same thing, though they are a bit similar, kind of how American processed cheese food slices and cheddar cheese are similar, but really not the same thing at all. And yet a British Bilderberger, Baron Dennis Winston Healy, once said in an interview, quote, to say that we were striving for a one world government is exaggerated, but not wholly unfair. Those of us in Bilderberg felt we couldn't go on forever fighting one another for nothing and killing people and rendering millions homeless. So we felt that a single community throughout the world would be a good thing. Having said that, former chairman of the steering committee, Viscount Etienne Davignon of Belgium, told the BBC in 2005, quote, When people say this is a secret government of the world, I say that if we were a secret government of the world, we should be bloody ashamed of ourselves. This suggests that if they really did have all the power that some people credit them with, then they'd be doing a much better job of things. But they don't, so we live in the messy old world that we all know and sometimes don't love. Bilderbergers mainly talk and don't really do much else. They don't have votes, they don't issue reports, they don't even issue statements very often. Though they did throw their support behind Belgian politician Herman von Rumpy's bid to be European Council President, which was successful. The Bilderberg group is also old, and by that I mean full of old people who are more than a little bit out of touch with our times. And yes, sometimes private conversations at these meetings do get carried over to the outside world and expanded to others in the governance game. And so they do have some influence over how things turn out. Influence, mind you, not control. Or who knows? We don't really know because, like the Bohemian Grove, no one really knows what's said at Bilderberger meetings. So, conspiracy folks can put whatever they want onto that blank canvas. The Bilderbergers are promoters of hardline, unregulated capitalism. No, they're fascists. No, they're communists. No, they're Satanists. But the main charge seems to be this all-pervasive fear of a one-world government that so many conspiracists fear and which sounds a bit commie to them. Lithuanian professional conspiracist Daniel Eustelin, who moved to Canada and then Spain and now writes in English and Spanish, is particularly focused on the Bilderbergers. He wrote The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, which came out in 2005. Fidel Castro apparently read this book and became quite interested in the whole Bilderberg thing, prompting him to pen a sort of a treatise on eliminating the, quote, world government, and quoting heavily from Eustelin and Lyndon LaRouche, who also hates the Bilderbergers. Eustelin also promotes various globalist paranoid fantasies, like all Islamic terrorism was created by the West for evil purposes, along with investment advice, like how to create an inflation-proof portfolio, and his webinar titled Investing in the Crisis, How to Take Advantage of Economic Turmoil, which you can join for 30 U.S. dollars. 
So despite his desperate efforts to become the Bilderberger guy in the conspiracy world, Estulin is a bit late to the game. Journalist Big Jim Tucker had been on their case since the mid-1970s. He claimed to have attended several meetings, which prompted his 2005 book, Jim Tucker's Bilderberg Diary. He once claimed he went to the Bilderberg meeting at the Hotel Badeschahof in the German spa town of Baden-Baden in 1991, where he learned that Margaret Thatcher was soon to be out in the UK because she had gone to one of the meetings and didn't like it, and that Bill Clinton would soon become the next American president. He tried to sneak into the 1999 meeting in Sintra, Portugal, a rather comical affair that you can read about in John Ronson's excellent book, Them Adventures with Extremists. In fact, he tried to sneak in every year, encouraged and funded by Liberty Lobby, a neo-Nazi, Holocaust-denying right-wing group that existed from 1955 until 2001. Big Jim Tucker got himself on Alex Jones, and while Jones liked his style. For the record, Margaret Thatcher didn't go to one meeting, she went to three meetings, and there's no word on whether she liked it or not. Of course, the John Birch Society has added the Bilderbergers to their ever-growing list of evildoers, as has Phyllis Schlafly, who once said that one of their goals was to prevent any, quote, real conservatives from ever getting elected. She was a hard-line Goldwater fan. And British Brexiter Nigel Farage also hates them. So, for Americans and Brits, they're communists. For most Europeans of a conspiratorial bent, however, they're seen as right-wing shills who would love to undo all the reforms of the past few years. In 2010, WikiLeaks got a hold of the minutes to the 1973 Bilderberg meeting in Sweden and breathlessly put them online. These turned out to be extremely dull. The Trilateral Commission. The newer kid on the block of big scary groups is the Trilateral Commission, set up in July 1973 as an NGO think tank to bring closer cooperation between three geopolitical entities, that's the Tri, Western Europe, North America, and Japan. It has since grown with a handful of members from other countries in the Middle East and North Africa, as well as Singapore, South Korea, and India in Asia, and a few fellows from former communist European countries like the Czech Republic, Poland, Slovenia, and Estonia. They have three headquarters, one in Washington, D.C., one in Paris, and one in Tokyo, and their biannual conference rotates between the three regions. It's a fairly exclusive thing to join. You have to be invited, and right now, there are only 400 members, mainly influential types in business and politics. The brief is one of multilateralism, global governance, and global trade. Yes, that globalization you often hear so much about. As an article by Cecil Adams on the Straight Dope website puts it, quote, The Trilateral Commission is based on the quintessentially American notion that if we could just get together and talk about stuff, we could solve all the world's problems. Or, if you want to take a different attitude, you can quote this choice bit from the website God's Sword of Truth, The Word, that says, quote, One of the most dangerous evil groups of people ever assembled is the Trilateral Commission. They are the forerunners of the New World Order. That page goes on to say that they are just the latest incarnation of the Freemasons, the Illuminati, and the Brotherhood of the Bell which isn't a real thing, but was a 1970 CBS Thursday night movie about a secret society starring Glenn Ford, Dean Jagger, Rosemary Forsyth, and Dabney Coleman. But apparently, whoever runs the God Sword of Truth, The Word website, saw it and thought it was a documentary, though you have to wonder why they didn't ask themselves, why is Glenn Ford in a documentary? 
The Trilateral Commission, or the TLC, as it is sometimes shortened to, was set up by David Rockefeller along with Zbigniew Brzezinski, a Polish-American international affairs expert who had been President Johnson's advisor and would later become President Carter's national security advisor. Other founding members include Alan Greenspan and Paul Volcker, both of whom would end up as heads of the Federal Reserve System, and then Governor Jimmy Carter. Oddly, during the 1980 U.S. presidential election, founding member Carter was up for re-election, but so were fellow members John Anderson, who ran as an independent, and Ronald Reagan, who ended up winning and even had a reception for the trilaterals at the White House in 1984. These connections all came out during the campaigns, and it was the first time that most people had heard of the Trilateral Commission. That same year, columnist Holly Sklar, who had pieces in the left-leaning Z magazine and The Nation, as well as more popular fairs such as USA Today, edited the book Trilateralism, the Trilateral Commission and Elite Planning for World Management, which Rational Wiki calls, quote, a notable primer on Moonbat criticism of them. Moonbat is the left-wing version of a wing nut. Some of the essays in there reference the Council on Foreign Relations, who the book says had a, quote, blueprint for world hegemony, 1939 to 1945, sections on the New World Order, which doesn't exist, and the Bilderbergers, and even has a whole section titled Elite Planning, World War II through the 1980s. Carter himself comes in for quite a bit of criticism in this book. Noam Chomsky also finds them to be elitist and undemocratic, a point he repeated with his 1999 Profit Over People, Neoliberalism, and Global Order. He took his cue from a 1975 report co-written by a member of the Trilateral Commission and originally published by them called The Crisis of Democracy on the Governability of Democracies, which looks specifically at the U.S. as maybe having, quote, an excess of democracy that sometimes undermined the prestige of governmental institutions and the public seemed to want a lot of left-wing reforms. Folks like Chomsky and Sklar took this to mean that the Trilateral Commission and similar groups were really just a bunch of powerful people sitting around chatting amiably about how the public needed to be tricked into being apathetic so that the adults in the room could continue running things the way they ought to be run. Trilateralism, if you will, which is all about these high-level people reaching consensus on how to manage things internationally so as to encourage stability, which could be read as keeping things the way they already are. So these people talk, and they think, and they research, and then they send advice to places like the World Bank and the IMF and various governments around the world. And these people are self-appointed, not elected. This is very much Chomsky's main problem. And sure, a lot of that could be interpreted as being more than a bit hinky. All these folks who have actual real widespread influence and access to the corridors of power giving advice that benefits them and or their vision of how things should be. On the other hand, how is that really any different from any other influence group or lobbying organization? So, come 1980-81, that was the state of thinking on the Trilateral Commission. But then Barry Goldwater, down but not out, chimed in. The Republican senator from Arizona had started off a very vocal opponent way back when of Roosevelt's New Deal and had lost the presidential race in 1964, but his hardline conservative views caught quite a few people's imaginations. It could be argued that Nixon and later Reagan were possible only because of Goldwater's appeal to those who were more than a little freaked out by things like racial integration, women's rights, and men with long hair. 
Also in 1980, Goldwater wrote a book called With No Apologies, in which he frets that the Trilateral Commission might be, quote, a skillful, coordinated effort to seize control and consolidate the four centers of power, political, monetary, intellectual, and ecclesiastical. The goal of this is to form a transnational, informal economic entity that would actually be more powerful than nations, but sort of guide things from behind the scenes. Also, wait a minute, did he say ecclesiastical? Well, the evangelical Christians sure didn't like the sound of that. Pretty soon, some preachers with visions of the end times in their eyes saw the Trilateral Commission as a plot to create a synarchy, a world government, that would then lead to the rise of the Antichrist and bring about the time of tribulation. This sort of talk ramped up all through the 80s after Reagan emboldened the evangelicals by seeking advice from people like Jerry Falwell, all while his wife continued to consult an astrologer in California. As the 1980s progressed with the pervasive threat of nuclear annihilation, the decade-plus-long satanic panic mentioned in a previous episode, and even Reagan himself once saying that the people alive today are the, probably the ones who would see Armageddon, other panic brokers started saying things like, hey, have you ever noticed how the Trilateral Commission's logo looks like a not-very-well-concealed 666? It's three arrows in a circle pointing in towards the center, sort of a lame recycling symbol. But, you know, people are going to see what they want to see. Then, of course, pretty soon there was talk that the group was really the Illuminati and the New World Order. And then someone dug up some rantings by Lyndon LaRouche, who said back in 1976 that the Trilateral Commission was going to have a limited nuclear war to depopulate third world nations and then take the remainder of the spoils for themselves. I guess Lyndon LaRouche has never heard of radioactivity. After the Cold War ended rather abruptly, British human rights activist Vladimir Bukovsky, who was born in Russia, got a peek at some of the old Soviet archives and concluded that the EC and its later form, the EU, had actually been workshopped by the Soviet Politburo and the Trilaterals as a way to bring the USSR into global markets because no one thought it was just going to collapse one day, so they had to figure a way to work with them. Or at least, he says, the trilaterals thought that's what they were doing, but the plan had really been hatched by the Soviets all the way back in 1938 to create a worldwide Soviet Union. He wrote this theory up in 2004 in the book EUSSR, The Soviet Roots of European Integration, Our Slogan is a Worldwide Soviet Union, Anthem of the Comintern, 1938. This whole freak out about the Trilateral Commission was very much a 1980s zeitgeist thing. The paranoia searchlights would shift elsewhere after evangelist Pat Robertson's 1991 book, The New World Order, which bent on many of the same drums as all the previous freakouts. However, the 90s also saw the rise of the American militia movement, and together these two things would galvanize and in some ways weaponize conspiracy talk and thought in preparation for the internet and the 21st century that we all now find ourselves living through. The eyes have it. And some organizations are only ideas right now, but they still have real-world components that make some people wonder about, well, all kinds of things. Kenzook is an idea for an alliance between Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the UK, similar to what the old EEC was. Basically, it's a banding together for mutual cooperation between the majority white English-speaking parts of the British Commonwealth. The idea is it would be kind of a, a third leg of the edifice of the West along with the EU and the U.S. 
The term, an acronym of the four countries' names, was first coined in 1967, but it was during the 2016 Brexit discussion that it really came to the forefront. If the United Kingdom left the EU, how could they still retain influence and global reach? Well, maybe by starting their own thing, but with countries that had essentially been colonized, I mean settled, by British people. Sort of a, a British union instead of a European one. So they would have free movement of citizens for visas and work and residence. You could buy property, open trade, and so on and so forth. Ken Zookers, as they call themselves, are very skeptical of Europe, seeing as how it's mainly populated by non-native English-speaking people who are not British, and the whole idea seems more than a little bit racist to some. There's quite a bit of talk in Ken Zucker circles about, quote, kith and kin, and, quote, our people, which is clearly meant to mean white people. As such, the idea has attracted quite a few hard-right so-called libertarians, and some think it could be a sneaky way to just restart the British Empire. Also, all these countries already cooperate quite a bit. There's the ABCANS armies, which is an optimization and standardization scheme between the American, British, Canadian, Australian, and New Zealand armies. There's the naval group Auskanzukus, yet another acronym, which stands for Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, and the US. This is in turn part of another multilateral cooperative agreement between those same countries to share and standardize signals intelligence and includes the centralized operations center known as the Five Eyes. Five Eyes is more officially known as the Echelon Program and was started in the 60s to monitor European communist communication signals and diplomats, officially kicking into regular full-time operations in 1971. Its existence was kept secret until well after the Cold War ended. There have been numerous debates in the EU and even the U.S. Congress about just what on earth is going on there. As America declared a global war on terror, the Five Eyes were brought to bear on many locations, organizations, and individuals. As Edward Snowden, who accessed many of the documents about the Five Eyes Echelon program, put it, they are a, quote, supranational intelligence organization that does not answer to the known laws of its own countries. He could access that data because he worked for the NSA, and the NSA is heavily involved in Echelon. An important component of the Five Eyes system is the satellite surveillance base at Pine Gap, right smack dab in the middle of Australia, not far from the town of Alice Springs. Its classified designation is NRO, and the NSA refers to it as codename Rainfall. This place is big, with more than 800 people working there and 38 satellite dishes sitting under these big bubble domes called rad domes, so it looks kind of creepy and futuristic. Representatives and mission leaders from the five participating countries teleconference in times of crisis or need in a way that seems like a cross between the fictional organization Spectre from the James Bond novels and films and the Avengers from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Which one they lean more towards probably depends on how comfortable you are with what they're doing. Pine Gap collects telemetry from missiles, anti-missile and anti-aircraft signals, communication satellite signals, and microwave transmissions, which most long-distance phone calls are made of. It's these last two that have some people concerned about just how much spying is being done on citizens at large. The U.S. also uses part of the complex for air defense deployments and their ever-expanding drone program. In 2018, they sort of expanded cooperation, though of a limited sort, with France, Germany, and Japan in what they nicknamed Five Eyes Plus. 
There's been talk of making a six eyes, but there's little consensus as to who the lucky new partner should be. Some suggest Japan, others South Korea, or maybe Israel, and even Singapore has been suggested. Another informal arrangement involves the five main countries plus Denmark, France, the Netherlands, and Norway. This is sometimes referred to as the Nine Eyes. And another working agreement includes the Nine Eyes plus Belgium, Germany, Italy, Spain, and Sweden. And you can probably guess what that's called. That's right, 14 Eyes. Pine Gap looks creepy and sounds creepy, and there's been a lot of speculation about what's going on there, especially after the quite good 2018 Australian TV political drama titled Pine Gap. Some say the intelligence being gathered there is used by the Americans and or Australians for drone-facilitated targeted killing. Back in 1989, when its existence was still pretty much a secret, a couple of hunters claimed that they saw a door hidden in the outback landscape near Alice Springs, kind of camouflaged, that slid open and a large silver saucer-shaped hovering craft came out, a UFO, and then shot up into the night sky. And then the door slid closed and you couldn't see where it had been. They told some people at a nearby university about this. And some of the old timers in the area said that reminded them of another story back in 1980 when two Northern Territory police officers, while searching for a missing child, said pretty much the same thing. They'd seen a door that was hidden in the landscape open up and something strange fly out. Only this time it wasn't a saucer, it was several bathtub shaped objects. The flying tubs drifted across the Pine Gap facility and then a large hole seemed to open up in the air over the nearby hills and the objects all flew into it. And even earlier than that, back in 1973, a map maker was driving at night near Pine Gap when suddenly a bright shaft of blue light came out of the base. He drove closer and saw a large glowing disc-shaped object hovering in the air over the facility. The blue beam of light shot out from it again seeming to seek out the radomes over the radar antennae. The radar equipment then seemed to shoot beams back of their own to the craft, almost like a response. This light-based communication went on for half an hour, and then the object shot up into the sky. And in 1984, another incident occurred in which beams of light shot up from the equipment into strange clouds that had very suddenly and mysteriously formed over the Pine Gap base. Four UFOs shaped like diamonds came out of those clouds, along with a larger cigar-shaped one. This event was supposedly witnessed by several workers at Pine Gap. Well, it's stories like this that give Pine Gap its nickname, Australia's Area 51. And then, of course, there are always those who want to go further in the conspiracy world, saying that Pine Gap is Australia's answer to the Montauk Project and that they have opened up doorways into other dimensions there. And a guy named Rich Hansen claims that he was part of a secret CIA program to send personnel to Mars using advanced teleportation equipment somewhere in Australia, like maybe, like maybe Pine, Pine Gap. Gap. The fact is that like-minded people meet all the time for a number of purposes. Political action groups, protest organizers, book clubs, cooking classes, people who like cats. We just get suspicious when the people meeting control so much of the world's wealth and resources. So are the people who participate in these gatherings really up to no good? Maybe. Of course, you know, the powerful 1% don't need to meet in person. They could honestly accomplish whatever nefarious aims they have with a couple of conference calls over Zoom or Teams or even some proprietary encrypted protocol. Heck, I'm sure most of them know how to use email by now. 
So ascribing such levels of hysteria as we have seen from the conspiracy to these groups does seem a bit silly. They're probably exactly what they claim to be. After all, what would be the point of creating a publicly known group that plots to carry out secret plans? Why not just keep the whole thing secret to begin with? It's not like the people involved are accountable to us in any way. We don't know what they talk about really, and so speculation can run riot, feeding into whatever conspiracy narrative has temporarily or permanently taken over our mind. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you.